Our next speaker is Professor Hasnes, and he uh, has recently written a book that dovetails with uh, what uh, our prior speaker has uh, just discussed. The name of his book is Trapped, When Acting Ethically is Against the Law. He will not be discussing that today, but he will... He will not be discussing that subject today. He will discuss a subject which concerns all doctors and uh, all citizens, what the ideal tort system should look like. Unless we know that, we can't know how to put our ship on a corrective course. Uh, Because of time constraints, I will let you read his extensive CV. And I'll ask Professor Hasnos to come in and give his presentation at this moment. Thank you. I have to say I'm a little nervous today for two reasons. One is that I'm a former tort professor addressing an audience of physicians. Uh, That nervousness has been assuaged somewhat by following a doctor who just praised the jury system. So maybe uh, that gives me a little hope. But the other reason... I'm a little nervous, is I'm here under false pretenses. I was invited to address you on the topic of the ideal system of tort law. And I don't believe in the ideal system of tort law. I think the idea that there's an ideal system of tort law is probably primarily responsible for what's wrong with the tort system as it's functioning today. I'll explain that before I'm done. I'll come back to that. But before I even begin to talk about tort law, I'd like to provide some context. And I'm going to talk about law generally. Uh, In my opinion, one of the problems in attempts to address tort issues is that we look at them in isolation. Tort law is always looked looked at in isolation. What's wrong with the tort system? In my opinion, this is a big mistake. I think you have to see tort law in its proper context in order to make a proper evaluation. Now, part of the problem with the way we address legal issues, uh, I'm going to attribute to my colleagues in the academic world. There's an academic model of the relationship between the market and law that often leads us into flights of fancy that are not very helpful. Let me try to describe this. Typical academic uh, approach to issues of regulation will go like this. It will begin with a description of the economist's view of what the market is. What's the market? The market is the realm of unregulated voluntary transactions. It's where people buy and sell and interact with each other, and there's no regulatory forces in effect. And then from there, it will be pointed out that There's all kinds of problems with this. When people interact with each other, there are spillover effects. Sometimes there's negative consequences to others. And these aren't taken into account by the people who are transacting business among themselves. And these spillover effects, what economists call externalities, are not considered by the market. So what has to be done? Well, the law must step in. The law must step in and internalize the externalities. We need the law to correct for what's usually called market failure, the market's inability to take all of the consequences of private dealing into account. And if you 
listen to this story often enough, and after a while you have a certain view of the relationship between the law and the market. I've tried to capture it in this little picture. The law and the market are entirely separate realms. What's the market? It's the realm of unregulated voluntary transactions. And then what's the law? Well, the law is the regulation of voluntary transactions for the public good. And after a while, you start to believe that this has some reference to reality. And that's a very pernicious result for a lot of reasons. This is a mischaracterization of both the market and the law. There's no such thing as the realm of unregulated voluntary transactions. It doesn't exist. Economists use it for economic purposes. It's a figment of their imagination that's useful in the same way the concept of a perfect vacuum is useful to physicists. But no one should believe that there's any place in the world like that. Our interactions with each other, the way we deal with people, is always subject to various forms of regulation. A very important form of regulation is ethical beliefs. Uh, I'm an attorney, you're physicians. When we enter our profession, we actually have to subscribe to a canon of ethics where we make certain commitments. Our activities are regulated by canons of ethics. They're also regulated by people's ethical beliefs. Another very strong regulatory force that's always in effect is customary practice. These are non-legal form of regulations, which are very interesting, and I like to talk about them, but that's not the subject for today. There's also legal regulation, but there's two, at least two different forms of legal regulation that are always present. The first is the form of regulation that comes from civil liability, and this is what's usually associated with tort law. Civil liability regulates our interaction with each other. If I behave in some way, if I make a deal with someone else and we pollute a third party's home, that person can sue us. And the threat of that suit regulates our behavior. We take into account how our actions will harm or affect others because of the threat of civil liability. And that's one form of regulation. There's another form of legal regulation. And that's the form of regulation that comes from the political representatives, either in your state legislatures or in the federal legislature. You can have legislative regulation as well. The choice, the issue that you must always address, the issue is never, should we have an unregulated market or a regulated market? The issue is always, what form of regulation is going to best accomplish the goals that you're after? Now, leaving aside ethics, we shouldn't leave aside ethics. I mean, canons of ethics often are very effective. But leaving aside ethics and customary practices for a while, if you are talking about legal regulation, your question is always a comparative one. Would we do better with regulation through civil liability, through a tort system, or through a legislative system? So my depiction of the correct relationship between the law and the market is something more like this. Right? What's the market? The market is voluntary transactions regulated by custom, by ethics, and I'm going to say by common law, by tort law. Why? Because tort law is non-political legal regulation. There might be all kinds of things wrong with it, but tort law is not subject, well, typically tort law is not subject to political manipulation. It's not the Democrats are going to do this or the Republicans are going to do that. It's plaintiff's lawyers trying to vindicate somebody's interest against defense lawyers. What's the law? There's two types of law. One is 
legislation. Let's get real about legislation also. Legislation is not necessarily the pursuit of the public good. Legislation usually represents whatever the politically dominant interest in the state or the national legislature is in favor of. Usually I don't need to make much argument about that because so many people are in favor of campaign finance reform and they're all talking about Jack Abramoff and everything else that's going on. So they seem to already believe that what comes out of the legislative process is not pure consideration for the public good but is affected by the politically dominant or the politically powerful interests. That's what legislation is. And the common law is the other form. Tort law is the other form of regulation. Looked at in this way, there's an intersection between the law and the market. And the intersection is represented by civil liability. So here's the context in which I'll address you. Right, the question is, what's the better mechanism for providing for the safety of all of the members of society against the carelessness or the wrongful conduct of others? Is it through tort law or is it through... Um, legislation. I'll prejudice the issue a little bit by suggesting to you the two mechanisms involved. First, let me talk, show you the mechanism involved when you're dealing with legislative regulation. Okay. Regulation through your political representatives. Well, here's the process that you would go through. All right. These are some steps in the legislative regulatory process. Propose a bill that's going to regulate individual conduct to protect the public deal with the bill's sponsors and opponents, lobbying for its passage and its amendment or defeat. If you get it through, set up the regulatory agency, hire your staff, do all that, begin the regulatory rulemaking process, deal with the lobbying of regulated parties trying to obtain the most favorable, the rules most favorable to their interests and disable their competition. You have to promulgate the special rules, make sure everybody knows what they are, publish them, you have to create an enforcement mechanism. You have to hire all of the, the judges. You have to get the uh, regulatory police in effect. And you have to constantly monitor the regulated environment to determine whether things are working out the way they should. So that's legislative regulation. There's another form of regulation. That's the regulation that you get through tort law. The steps in that regulatory process can be depicted as follows. Common law regulation is a requirement that we all exercise the degree of care that a reasonable person would use to avoid causing harm to others by his or her actions. So that's your choice. How do you want to protect the public for safety? Through which of these mechanisms? All right. No one can talk about tort law these days without mentioning Stella Liebeck. That's the woman who spilled McDonald's coffee on herself and recovered a big judgment. And she unfortunately became the poster person for tort reform. But let me use her case to illustrate the relative strengths and weaknesses of the two forms of regulation. All right, imagine that this, this is the following situation obtains. Fast food restaurants all across the United States are serving coffee at 185 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a temperature such that if you spill the coffee on yourself, it will cause third-degree burns in from two to seven seconds. If the temperature at which the coffee was served was 157 degrees, it would take almost 30 seconds to cause the same third-degree burns. Nevertheless, the fast food restaurants continue to serve it at the high temperature. In fact, they know about the danger because there's been a lot of incidents of coffee spills by the employees of the fast food restaurants that have caused third-degree burns. Nevertheless, even aware of the dangerous nature of the coffee, they continue to serve it. 
how can we correct this dangerous situation? Well, you could go through the legislative process. Let's see. We could bring complaints before the Consumer Product Safety Commission and hope that that gets through. We have to deal with the fact that the interest opposed to it, McDonald's, Burger King, all of the other large corporations, are going, you know, they don't want interference. They've got a lot of money to fight the regulation. The interests that would like to protect consumers, they're unorganized. Who's going to put up money for this? It's not a big issue. There's all kinds of... We're worried about the ozone hole. Who cares about this kind of stuff? What are the prospects of getting safety regulation through the political system? I'm going to say they're not that good. And if you did get it, it would probably be a five-degree reduction that has to take place in 10 years. On the other hand, one woman could sue McDonald's and recover a judgment that covered her medical injuries for a coffee spill and also contained a punitive damage award that was equal to the profit that McDonald's makes on coffee, selling coffee for two days. When that happened, the next day in the United States, all coffee served in fast food restaurants was served at a temperature for which it took 30 seconds to cause third-degree burns. And that's plenty of time to take off whatever article of clothing the coffee is spilled on. The next day, everybody in the country was safer. There's two types of regulation available to us. If you are interested in safety regulation, I'm going to suggest to you that tort law is the more effective mechanism of regulation. Okay, having said that, that's the context. The context is you're always making a comparative judgment. All right, what about tort law? Um, There are many, many problems with the contemporary tort system. I can identify some of them for you. I cannot trace any of the things that are besetting the current contemporary tort system back to common, the common law of tort. Almost all of the problems I can identify are not problems of tort law. They're problems of tort reform. The last generation of tort reform. What do I mean by this? Many of the problems of contemporary tort law are not particularly relevant to physicians. I mean, before I'm done, I'll probably say some disheartening things. But the big problems in tort law concern things like products liability. Products liability is essentially strict liability for products that are sold in commerce. That is not a feature of the common law of tort. That was engrafted into tort law wholesale by William Prosser, who was the leading tort scholar of the middle of the 20th century. And without telling a lot of stories, I think it was in 1949 he wrote a big law review article saying the future direction of tort law is the development of products liability, strict liability for products sold in commerce, for, for defective products. He said within 20 years that will be the, the law. So 19 years go by and it doesn't happen. But William Prosser becomes the draftsman of the second restatement of torts and he writes something called section 402A which says there's strict liability for products, for defective products sold in commerce. All the judges quote it, and when, by the 20th year, there now is such a thing. Products liability is a big problem. It causes what's usually called the litigation explosion. It incentivizes lawsuits without having to show fault. But that doesn't come out of the common law of tort. If you, we just heard some praise for the jury. One reason why I am an advocate of regulation, regulation through tort law is because of the jury. If a jury is not instructed by judges, and those of you that have been on a jury probably will be familiar with this, 
Juries take their job very seriously, and they almost always try to do the right thing. They are it's, they're ordinary people who have a chance to be involved in the process of justice, and they're very serious about it. They will do what's fair, usually. You get aberrant results when judges start to give instructions to them about what their duty, are, duty is. But before that, the tort law that developed from jury decisions almost always was a fault-based system and a very subtle and sophisticated system. If through my negligence I harm someone else, the jury will make me pay compensation. Typically it will. But if I'm careless and I'm partially responsible for my own injury, the jury doesn't, no jury's going to reward that. They don't give me compensation when someone else is negligence. And the rules that actually evolved were the rules of contributory negligence. If you're negligent, if you're not careful and you cause harm to somebody else, you have to put that person back into the position he or she was in before your negligence. But there's no recovery if the plaintiff is contributorily negligent because the jury just doesn't think it's fair to reward people for contributing to their own injury. And those rules are, are actually very intelligent rules. The fact that we can be hit with a judgment and have to pay compensation when our carelessness harms others gives us all the incentive we need to be careful. That deters our careless behavior. We don't also have to punish, you know, to add a judgment on when the plaintiff has been careful as well. The deterrence is already there. On the other hand, when we don't reward people who are careless themselves and help incur their own injury, what message does that send? Well, you better take care. You better look out for yourself. You have a responsibility to protect yourself as well. And all parties get a message that you should be reasonably careful. A pretty good rule for society. That's what comes out of a common law tort system. That's what comes out of a jury system. That's not the rule of law anymore. There's only three jurisdictions left, Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, where that's the rule. Why? Because all intellectuals know you can't trust the ordinary person who serves on a jury. They're not intelligent enough. They're not educated enough to know what the correct rules of law are. The intelligentsia knows better. And the rule of contributory negligence is obviously unjust. Just think about it. What if a big corporation is negligent and some poor individual wasn't as careful as he or she should have been and is like 10% responsible for his or her injury. And now that person can recover nothing and has a lifetime of hardship where the big corporation could have given compensation and made that person's life a little better. It's unjust. The rules of common law are unjust. To make them more, to make them fairer, to make them better, to improve on common law, we need a different regime. It's called comparative negligence. Now someone who's partially responsible for his or her own injury can walk into court and say, I should still get some compensation. We'll just reduce, our, in, the case, in the McDonald's coffee cup case, Stella Liebeck was contributorily negligent. So her judgment was reduced by 30%. She was 30% responsible. She recovered 30% less. And those, that's the rule now because in the... In the minds of the intellectuals, this is a fairer system. Of course, what the result is, is no one's ever kicked out of court now, no matter how careless they are. The people who thought this would be a more just system didn't anticipate the litigation explosion. But the litigation explosion occurred because we're essentially subsidizing plaintiffs to come into court. That's 
comparative negligence. That's products liability. I'm not sure that these issues are, these are big problems with tort law. I'm not sure that these issues are that relevant for physicians. Uh, there's another issue that may be more relevant, and that's the issue of punitive damages. Think about that. The common law of punitive damages made a great deal of sense as well. If I am careless or I inadvertently harm someone else, what's my obligation under the law the way it evolved through jury results? It's to compensate the injured party, to put that person back into the condition he or she would have been in if I hadn't been careless, to restore the person. And that's all. It's compensation. So how can there be punitive damages? Well, if I go out with the intent to harm someone else, if I engage in malicious prosecution or some kind of malicious thing to destroy another person's career or to injure that person, often I won't be deterred by mere compensation. I am intending to do harm. Some more discouragement is necessary there. And so punitive damages are awarded to discourage intentional wrongdoing. They make a lot of sense within their proper context. These days, punitive damages are often awarded in negligence suits because the word, and I can explain why, although it's perhaps legal arcania, punitive damages are available for intentional wrongdoing. In the law, something that's done knowingly, even though you don't actually desire the result, will be considered intentional. This allows plaintiff's attorneys to say the company was aware of the fact that this product wasn't properly tested, and therefore they intentionally didn't do all of the testing they should do. Therefore, punitive damages can be awarded. So there may be a problem in that punitive damages are now awarded in cases in which there's not in what we would, what the ordinary person or the jury would consider there to be intentional wrongdoing. This comes to the jury in the form of judge's instructions, where the judge defines intentionality to be to include mere knowing behavior or knowledge of a risk which is disregarded. So that could be a problem. However, most of these issues that I'm talking about, which I see as problems with, first of all, these kind of problems I'm identifying, these are not problems with tort law. These are almost exclusively problems with tort reform. We reform the system to make it more just. We create a comparative negligence. We reform the system to turn it into a social insurance mechanism so that big corporations will compensate injured parties. That's products liability. Well, these were the reforms, and the reforms have created a very pro-plaintive system where there's a lot of complaint about the system being too highly regulatory. It discourages businesses from producing their products. It discourages businesses from taking any risk. Nobody will manufacture football helmets anymore. The complaint is the system is too highly regulatory because the reforms made it a pro-plaintive system. There are many ways in which, the, in which tort law impacts on the medical profession. Excuse me for saying this. I don't see that much problem with medical malpractice, with the law of medical malpractice. I'll try to explain why briefly. Um, physicians hold themselves out as professionals. Physicians have a high, have a high degree of expertise, and they claim to be acting in the best interest of the patients. 
as part of their profession, they have a fiduciary relationship to the patient. That's basically what it means to be a professional. Attorneys do. Financial advisors do. Clergy does. Physicians do. Professionals, the professional's relationship to the client is not level. There's a higher level of expertise. Typically, there's a higher higher level of pay. Perhaps government regulation is impacting that. But the reason why there's this higher level of pay is because there's a higher level of expertise and more trust is invested in the patient. Sorry, in the professional. This means that often there's a higher burden on the professional as well. The way this comes across to physicians is as follows. In ordinary dealings, all that's required for something to be a legitimate dealing is that there is consent. Someone agrees. That's enough to legitimate a transaction. But that's not the case for physicians. Physicians have a higher duty. They have to get not just consent, but informed consent. Physicians bear the burden of explaining all of the risks and making sure that the patient is educated enough so the consent truly represents the patient's autonomous decision. Informed consent is a higher burden placed on the physician than the ordinary legal standard. Why? Because the physician is in a fiduciary relationship with the patient, and that's why the law places the higher burden there. I think that this is something that goes along part and parcel with the fact of being a professional. Um, uh, Comparative negligence is usually not an issue for medical malpractice. I mean, the issue is not that the patient was somehow careless and harmed him or herself, so that's not an issue. Products liability is a big issue for drug manufacturers, but I'm not sure that it's a a significant issue for physicians. Most of the things that are wrong with tort law don't apply to physicians. There's a big problem for physicians in medical malpractice. And I know that malpractice insurance rates are going up. There's what are called a lot of frivolous lawsuits brought. And there's some unfairness built into the system. But none of that, I can't trace any of that back to the rules of tort law, which I think in this area are pretty good. I can trace it back to other things. I can trace it back to things that have to do with the law of civil procedure or the costs associated with pursuing lawsuits today. We've built a system of rules for who can get into court and what's required to overcome summary judgment and what kind of discovery process is allowable that makes it very, very, very expensive to defend lawsuits. It doesn't really matter if it's tort lawsuits or not. And the high cost of litigation gets to a point at which it becomes economically rational to pay someone to go away rather than to defend yourself. The cost of a successful defense can be higher than the cost of paying someone off in the form of a settlement. And this will certainly drive up costs and will also put physicians in a position of, some, of seeming to admit wrongdoing when they're not and feeling pressured to do so. This is unfortunate. It's not a problem with tort law. It's a problem with civil procedure. It's a problem with some of the reforms that were designed to make the legal system more accessible to the poor and easier for people to vindicate their rights. The other side of that has been that it's driven up costs. So that's a problem. Um, uh, I've mentioned most of these. So I'm going to say that with regard to Physicians, uh, this is where I'm uh, 
I'm not sure I want, how I want to say this. With regard to physicians, not drug companies, not other elements, not other uh, parts of society, I think the rules of tort law are already pretty good. Part of the reason for that is, to a large extent, they still reflect the rules that evolved out of ordinary people's decision-making. Informed consent is an extremely interesting part of the law to study. It's a fascinating part of the law. One reason why so many bioethicists focus on it is as follows. Informed consent did not come from intellectuals. It did not come from the philosophers. At Georgetown, I'm an associate member of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics, which is a bioethics institute, and it's one of the oldest. They've written books about informed consent, but informed consent didn't come from those minds. It came from juries. It came from ordinary people deciding cases in which they thought it was unfair that someone had consented to something without a full understanding and that doctors had a higher level of care than ordinary people because of their expertise, because they hold themselves out as professionals, and because patients repose trust in them. And informed consent came out of the common law system. So I have a lot of confidence in the rule. Today, informed consent is usually regarded as an ethical obligation and my ethicist colleagues will give you all of the wonderful moral and philosophical justifications for that. But they didn't lead on that, and it didn't come from the, the academy. It came in the 1950s and 60s out of juries. So I, in this respect, I, have, I think the rules of tort law are fairly good. My, if you want to try to act for legal reform, I'm going to recommend that you focus your attention not on tort law, but on the procedural features of the contemporary litigation system, the costs associated with getting into court, some of the rules about the discovery process, some of the rules that we made to make the court system more accessible to the ordinary person has made it such that it's becoming too expensive to defend. And that's probably the place to look. I'll close with this. Most advocates of present-day tort reform are leading you in an unprofitable direction. Uh, we now suffer the effects of the last generation of tort reform. If we go the way of tort reformers today, our children will be dealing with the problems that we create. Think for a moment about putting caps on damages. I'll try to make this in terms of a, a medical analogy, but I mean, if someone has a disease and what you do is you just make that person feel comfortable and reduce the pain associated with it and don't treat the disease, uh, you've relieved symptoms and the disease goes on forever. If the problem is that we're allowing punitive damages to be awarded where there's not intentional wrongdoing and we treat that with things like caps on the amount that can be awarded for punitive damages or, or other types of monetary caps, what are we doing? Well, we are reducing the pain associated with the problem to some extent, and we're guaranteeing that it goes on forever. I think you would do better to look down at the root of the problems, which usually is some departure from the common sense of the ordinary person, than the way most of the people who are working through the legislative system would have you go, which is all kinds of monetary caps or things designed to relieve the symptoms. All right, let me close with that.